Hello, and welcome to Just Keep Writing While Black. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. And I'm LP. And joining us this week for Just Keep Writing While Black, the third episode in Black History Month of 2023, is Arlie Sorg. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you. What's up, y'all? Well, we're glad to have you. So, Arlie, you know that I think that you're the, the hardest working man in speculative fiction. So I just want you to tell the people about all the things that you do. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I am a co-editor-in-chief at Fantasy Magazine, which is a sister mag to Lightspeed and Nightmare. I'm also associate editor at Lightspeed and Nightmare, senior editor at Locus, uh, columnist at the magazine in fantasy and science fiction, interviewer at Clark's World. I do interviews for my own site, and I do some kind of organizational stuff here and there and a lot of teaching. I'm going to do – I'm the instructor for week five of Clarion West this year, for example, but I've done a lot of other little teaching and speaking gigs here and there. Yeah. That was a lot. Harley. (laughs) Harley does the damn thing. (laughs) So, So, words. Your background is multiracial, right? Yeah. I'm half black, half white. That's the short version. I'm also a smidge of native, and the white is mixed all kinds of whites. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, you got these whites, you got that whites, you got the other whites, you know. <laughs> the, the, the Caucasian side of Caucasian on this side, and the black yeah. side of black on this side. And I'm just white, get- white side is very complicated, you know. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're on because you hold such an interesting space in speculative fiction. Um, you know, um, I know that at one point you were a writer, but like all the editing work that you do uh, as, as a journalist, right, as well as, as a fiction editor, you see the industry from a lot of different sides. And I've taken to calling you the Mr. Rogers of speculative fiction because you've, you've uh, you know, Arlie's... Um, affirmations and uh his affirmations are uniquely geared toward you know uh marginalized people in speculative fiction and i just wanted to have a conversation about how you got to where you are as the mr rogers of speculative fiction as the hardest of the james brown of speculative fiction (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well in terms of the in terms of the affirmations and in terms of being the mr rogers um it, a lot of that comes from just seeing all the negativity and feeling like that's not who I want to be, especially, you know, when I became editor, when I became co-editor at Fantasy, um, I gained like 3,000 Twitter followers. And mm-hmm. it just made me really cognizant of the fact that what I say is going to have a different kind of weight than it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought a lot about that. And I thought about who I want to be, what kind of message I want to be, and what sort of energy is already out there. And there was so much negativity. There are so many people who, you know, their default is attack mode um, or who just don't care. Or And, you know, coming from the space of being a writer, in particular a person of color and a queer person, just the baseline of that identity in – not only in genre, but in writing spheres in general, 
is problematic because you are marginalized. You are in classes full of white people who don't know how to read your work and who are going to tell you, oh, you know, I didn't get this because blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's funny because everyone I know would get this, but you don't get it, you know? And so thinking about all those things and entering that space and realizing that my voice is going to carry a different weight for better or for worse, I just really wanted to not be another um, force of negativity. I wanted to counter that. And I wanted to, you know, for what it's worth, for what little it's worth, you know, because I don't think it's a lot. But, uh, you know, if I can help somebody to get through the day or to get through the writing or to get through even that moment and to realize that they're not alone and that somebody is here with them and that we all struggle and that, uh, you know, the struggle is worth it and they have to believe in themselves. Um, they have to bet on themselves. If I can be a part of that, then that's what I want to do. Strong choices, strong choices. Um, so I, I, we've talked about this uh, on a one-on-one basis, but what, uh, so now you are co-editor, senior editor, you know, doing all those things. Um, yeah. How did you, how did, if this is the, the end point ellipses, uh, what was the beginning point? I was just writing on my own. So the beginning point is really my mom. My mom, a black woman who came from the ghetto, who had a very hard life. And I had a very bad childhood. And I didn't know a lot of things about my mom, but I knew she had a terrible, terrible, terrible childhood. Um, and then uh, one day I found her writings, not really knowing that she was a writer. And, um, you know, I could see it. There is these really powerful, wonderful, terrible, painful fiction pieces and poetry pieces that she had tucked away. And I could kind of see it, you know, um, you know, she's a black woman from the ghetto. She gave it a shot, but how much of a shot did she give it? Because how much did she believe she had a shot? And even in that era, how much of a shot did she really have? You know, how many people were really reading it? And so um, that was the beginning. Uh, I always loved fiction. I always loved genre. But seeing her writings and then um, my grandma on my dad's side used to have us just tell stories at bedtime to each other. So that was a big part of it. Um, so I came into it with those uh, things embedded in my psyche. And I came into it as a writer. And then in 2013, I went to my first convention and um, – I was terrified. I was like, I don't know what is going to happen. I don't know who these people are. I don't know what to expect. Which convention? A uh, Bacon, a local convention. Um, and uh, a friend of mine at the time, you know, was like, fine, I'll take you. You know, just stop complaining. Um, and I met a lot of friends at that first convention and kind of got plugged in. Um, and uh, it was the right move for me. Um, and the people that I met there became critique groups, um, became connections to other things. Um, I learned about workshops. I went to Odyssey in 2014 because of going to Bacon and learning about workshops. And um, when, I, when I was in Odyssey, a friend of mine said, yo, this position opened up at Locus. Um, well, she is like a white girl, so she didn't say yo. But that's my, <laughs> that's my, you know, re-envisioning. Yeah. This, this is being, uh, you know, changed for, for the purposes. But um, 
she said, there's an opening. And uh, because she had introduced me to a friend of hers um, and we had done a couple writing sessions together, you know, the friend vouched for me. I did like the most perfunctory interviews, got the job and just stuck with that and met more people, went to more conventions. Basically everything that I do is a direct result of meeting people at conventions and, uh, you know, uh, having a good attitude, uh, asking questions, being friendly enough, putting myself out there. I'm shy. I'm an introvert, but I just, you know, shut it down in the moment. And I'm like, I'm going to go over here and talk to this person, even though I'm scared shitless, uh, I'm just going to do it because this is why I came to the convention. So I go over there, I meet the person, I talk to them con after con after con, ask questions, let them get to know me, get to know them. And, you know, everything that I do is a direct result of that process, literally everything. Um, so that's how I got where I am. Um, and I don't know where it's going to take me. The thing that I've learned about genre and about people and about these positions is they're all ephemeral. I just wrote an article about this about the for the FNSF. I wrote an article about magazines that were all noteworthy that no longer exist. Mm. <laughs> so I looked at the Hugos from the last, uh, I think it was 10 or 15 years or something, and just what magazines had been on there that had dropped off. And it was something like one third of one third of them are now gone. Mm. And so it's like one third of these notable magazines are gone. And there's all these important people that used to be important that nowadays nobody has heard of and that nobody cares. And one or two names are more enduring, but, you know, it's also ephemeral. So that's also goes back to the Mr. Rogers thing, which is like, you know, if I want to have an impact, what kind of impact do I want to have? And what I want to have is an impact on people's lives. You know, I want to help people get where they're going because, I'm a co-editor-in-chief at Fantasy now, but that magazine could be gone in a month, two months, a year. Uh, I could be doing something else. I could fade out. I could be gone, you know? I could have. I could be the, the next scandal and no one wants to talk to me, or I could blow up and be like the next big thing who's winning all the awards, but it's all ephemeral. So you kind of have to, I think you kind of have to jump in and do what you want to do now while you can and enjoy it while it lasts because it may not be around. Mm. So that's the journey. Huh? I have a question too, just uh, since you've mentioned conventions, um, we have a lot of people in our community that myself included that go to conventions, workshops, stuff like that. I mean, I've been to, I mean, and not just, just conventions in general. I mean, I've been to San Diego comic-con like eight or nine times, you yeah. know, uh, but I've gone to writing conventions. I've done, um, and those kind of things as well. So a lot of the folks in my community who I have met are introverts, just like you described yourself. Right. Yeah. So I know you said, you know, kind of just push through it and, and talk to people, but is there any other advice you can give to people who maybe can't quite get to that point or um, like, do you, should you travel in packs? Do you go with, you know what I mean? Like, what are some other things you can help folks with that? Absolutely. Just navigating conventions. Cause there's a lot of us that go and want to be there, but don't know how to, is it Barcon only? Like does Barcon help more than, you know, going to panels, et cetera. Yeah. Every, every convention is slightly different and every convention 
you're going to get something different out of it. And um, it depends on what you're going for, what you want out of it. And it also depends on the nature of the convention and who's around and how it's structured. Um, but yeah, there's some definite basic tips. Uh, I think going with someone is very helpful, but you need to go with someone that you can leave behind. You know, like if, if you're at a con and you're with the person you came with and somebody says, you know, someone that you really want to get to know and hang out with says, Hey, do you want to grab a drink? You don't want to have to be like, uh, but my friend, you know, you want to be able to say, yes, I definitely want to grab a drink and text your friend and be like, Hey, I'm going to grab a drink. I'll catch up with you later. You know, or if it's the right vibe, you say, Hey, can my friend come? But it really depends on the vibe because sometimes it's going to be like the invite is for you. Sometimes it's like the invite is a little bit more open and there are different kinds of social opportunities. So I think it's really good to go with a friend. Um, but I think it's good to go with somebody that, you know, you can occasionally break off and do your own thing. The main thing about being at a con, the main usefulness of it is to meet people. Um, and it's not just, you know, going to meet people to gain something is the wrong idea. Just meeting people for the sake of meeting people making friends, vibing on as many people as you can vibe with and going away with that is the best thing that you can do. And then if other things happen from that, that's great. And if nothing happens from it, that's fine too, because you met people, you learn things. Um, but it's really important to get in that headspace of, you know, you're paying X amount of money to rent the hotel, to fly there, to be there, to do these things. So, you know, maybe you should actually do those things. And so every person is going to be different in how their introversion and shyness works, but you kind of have to find the tricks that work for you. For example, um, one thing you can do is practice outside of that highly charged realm where the stakes are really low, like at a coffee shop, you know, with somebody who's sitting next to you or a bar or find different places where there is more of a natural pretext for you to talk to someone. For me, I used to wait tables and I used to bartend. So it gave Same. me a natural pretext <laughs> to talk to people. It wasn't easy. I still had that shyness and introversion, but I had an excuse. So I could always be like, yo, this is my job. You know, like, right. why are you giving me a problem? You know, um, <laughs> but it was, but more importantly than that, it was practice for managing my feelings, which is what you have to do at the end of the day. Because at the end of the day, it comes down to that person is over there, whoever, whoever that person is. And you have the opportunity right now to go talk to them. And so you have to find the way to make that happen. Another way can be to do that with your friend. So if you find that person in that situation and, uh, you know, you feel really intimidated, you can get your friend and go over there together and sort of approach the person together. Um, another way to do it is to invite the person ahead of time. For example, what I do sometimes is I'll look at the rosters at conventions. If I go to world fantasy, I'll look at who's going to be at world fantasy and I'll think about who do I really need to see that I have, I've either never met or, and I really would like to meet or that I don't see enough. And I would really like to spend some time with them and I will drop them an email. You know, hey, if you have time, um, you know, let's get together yeah, for yeah. a drink or a meal or whatever, whatever you're up for. I leave it very open. I leave room for them to say, oh, I don't have time. 
Um, I try to not take it personally, even though I still take it personally, but I try not to, you know, I have, I have feelings because this is not about not having feelings. Right. This is about managing your feelings and taking advantage of the moment, you know, and realizing like, this is how you do it because otherwise you go to eight conventions, you see the people that you want to hang out with and you never go talk to them and they're not going to come up and talk to you. Like if I'm at a convention um, at a lot of conventions, there's probably, you know, however many people I already know, I probably have a certain number of plans. I'm tired. I'm busy. I have panels. I'm teaching. I'm exhausted. I'm also going through my own emotional roller coaster. And so you can't sit, sit over there in the corner going, why isn't Arlie coming over and talking to me in the mass of like 50 people in the room? Right. Right. You got to come talk to me or whoever it is that you want to talk to. Um, so reaching out ahead of time is a great tip. And that way you can set the stage and it's okay to be nervous and shy, but don't dwell on it. You know, you can open with, man, you know, I've read all your stuff. I'm a big fan. I'm really nervous. And then you move on from there. You right. know, it's because they've probably been there. And the other thing is just realizing that most people in these spaces are also introverts. So you have it in common. They're nerds. You're going to find things to talk about you know? Right. right. So, yeah, I mean, okay. I have tons of tips, but no, that's you- great advice. No, I love it. <laughs> and when I tell you that Arlie is the hardest working man in science fiction and fantasy, I'll tell you James Brown is on a schedule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, if you see me at a con and I'm hanging out with a bunch of people, it's because I went up at some point and talked to them most likely, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how we made friends. So, you got to do the thing. But it's a special thing in the world when you get that early email. Hey, I know that you're going to be at this place. <laughs> <laughs> let's put it on the calendar. I'm like, all right, let's Arlie, let's put it on the calendar. Let's, let's, put on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. let's plan something because if we don't, we may not see <laughs> each other. Look, might be in passing. Might just be, hey, hey, Side hug in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we take all hugs, but, you know, we know that the side hug means that you're in the middle of something, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah you get the side hug sometimes. Uh, I sent uh, Marshall um, the link to What You Might Have Missed, which is your Ignite Award-nominated uh, essay in the Uncanny Magazine from 2021, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I read it again a couple of days ago. And just thinking about like the ways in which um, the ways in which writing is taught in the West that doesn't necessarily include everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the previous episode, in, in Yvette's episode, we talked a little about how there's a lot of um, there's a little Shona and a little Indebele in um, uh, Yvette's collection, drinking from Gary Yard Wells, which is out next month, which is March. Um, yeah, and it's fantastic. Um, and how like in her MFA program, people told her that she should put a glossary in her book so that folks would be able to like understand the words. And the person who made the recommendation had Latin in her. Assume that everyone, everyone who can read would obviously know what she's saying. Well, yeah, yeah. duh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there's, there's a, there's a, a cultural disconnect when the language that we're talking about isn't Latin or English. Um, But there's also a cultural disconnect when the protagonists, you know, aren't white and straight. 
And yep. so I wanted to to talk a little about the genesis of that that essay because I think it's really important. And you know, it, it kind of read as a IYKYK, but I think it hit people differently. It definitely hit the the marginalized communities squarely. And I'm wondering what your responses have been from like um, from allies. Like, did they feel yeah. like they learned something, or what? What, what the response has been? I have a lot yeah. of questions. I mean, the responses have been entirely positive. I got no hate about it, which is really weird because I was expecting hate or at least some grumbling. Everybody was really positive about it. I got so many positive reactions um, from marginalized communities as well as allies. Um, But I do think, you know, and again, that essay was very much like... um, you know, it, it always goes back to what sort of impact I want to make, if any, in genre. Um, and that essay exemplifies, you know, what I am trying to do as a person, as an individual in genre. Um, but I do think at the same time, it's published in Uncanny. Uncanny has a certain readership. And so to a degree, I think it's preaching to the choir. Like the mm-hmm. people who really need to read that essay probably don't even come across it. Um you know, and I feel like the best people to read those essays, things like this, are the people who are kind of on the verge. Um, because I think the outright racists and the people who really aren't going to get it, it's not going to change the way they think. But I think the way the people that it might really change the way they think are the people who, you know, are already starting to process similar kinds of thoughts. And so it could be meaningful and uh, groundbreaking for them. And it could change the way that they do certain things. And I've had allies say, yeah, this made me look at this. This made me read this differently, blah, blah, blah. But again, those allies are probably going to get there on their own to some degree or other. So, um, you know, I have mixed feelings about that, but um, about the utility of it, of the usefulness of it. But I'm also glad that so many people were fired up by it because that is also an important part of it. Just even if I am speaking to the choir, you know, there's a value in getting the choir excited, you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so I think a lot of that, that really came from working in the side of the industry of reviews and interviews and reading reviews, looking at different journals, um, looking at the way that things get interpreted over and over and over. And specifically um, the trans author that I cited was literally um, their story was in my opinion, misinterpreted and given less than generous reviews because of it. And I see it all the time in reviews of uh, people of color by white people um, or, you know, uh, straight people by of straight people reviewing gay works. I've seen it. Um, I saw this cis het dude review this piece, the science fiction piece, which was about pregnancy. And the cis het dude did not get a lot of the sociocultural elements of it, you know, especially the animosity, the immediate animosity that women have to deal with around the issue of abortion, you know, mm-hmm. like the cis het dude. does not get that today, you know, in certain places, this was before uh, the Roe versus Wade thing, um, the repeal. He didn't get that even, even in that day, a couple years ago, you know, there are places in the U S where if you go to get an abortion, there will be people who want to hurt you. 
simply because you want to get an abortion. And so because he didn't understand that as a baseline for a women's experience, he didn't get the gravity of some of the lines in that story. And so he misread it and gave it an inappropriate review. And so time after time I've seen that and thinking about, you know, looking at, not just thinking about, because I look at statistics in short fiction magazines, looking at, you know, just like the Black Specfic report talks about, looking at how few Black authors are getting published and thinking about um, the way that white editors are reading submissions by Black authors and by other authors of color. Not to mention, like, going back to the translation thing you were talking about, like, there's this white editor who published this Black author and put footnotes in his story explaining, for example, the term redbone. And I was like, do not footnote redbone. Like, I get it, you're white. Google that shit. You know, you you didn't footnote all these made up science fiction terms. You assume people are smart enough to figure it out. You know how many millions of people know what the fuck Redbone is? When you see, when you Google Redbone, a a photo marker shows up and so it's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like, think about translation and putting things in quotes and um, the extra work going back to what Toni Morrison talked about, the extra work that, you know, certain types of people demand that other people make in order to, you know, make their pieces, quote, uh, readable to them, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it makes me angry, but I'm not the go on Twitter and rant type of person. I'm not the write angry emails type of person. I'm the type of person who wants to think, you know, how can I do something constructive? How can I create positivity out of this? How can I try to help people who might be interested in learning because I know a lot of people aren't, but there's a handful who are. So how, how can I reach out to them and give them something tangible and um, specific and practical? Because we can talk theory all day and we can complain about shit, but unless somebody says, Hey, here's this thing we can actually do. Like it, it'll always stay at a certain level when you take it to here's this thing we can actually do. And so that's what I wanted to do with that essay is make it positive, but also say, Hey, here's this thing you can actually do. Here's a way, here's something that you can do to help change this environment and to help change it for yourself and to help change it for each other. So that's what it was all about. And that's where it came from is like, you know, that stuff still happens today. I ran, um, I actually ran Yvette's essay about in fantasy. Mm-hmm. about African story structure. Mm-hmm. And got it. Yeah. And um, I ran Vita Cruz's essay about, uh, <laughs> what was it? The, um, the, the, uh, the inactive uh, the mountains. Pro- yeah. The inactive protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those things are all part of that whole picture of like communicating to people that, uh, you know, cause I, I could send angry emails to editors but I don't think that's going to do much. I think it's more productive personally to, you know, create these spaces to have dialogue about different ideas, different ways to approach story, different ways to read things and to offer practical things for people who do want to make things better. I actually appreciate that about, about the essay too, is the fact that I, I don't know. I wrote, I wrote an essay 
years ago in response to the George Floyd thing. Um, and I was angry and frustrated when I wrote it. And it was interesting how many of my white friends came out of the woodworks asking me various things, right? Some were yeah. like, Oh, I just want to sit down with you and, and, and talk to you about this. Or, <laughs> you know, cause they, they had some opinion they wanted to get across to me or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. But I, I find it interesting though, at the end of, but, but at the end of yours, you, you actually said, okay, so here's what you could do. And here's a whole list of things you can read. And, and, I, and, uh, I think that is a much more, and, and I like the positivity <laughs> and, and I know LP put something in the chat while you were talking, like his response <laughs> wouldn't be the same as yours, but I got to appreciate the fact that, you know, that we have enough angry rants on Twitter. We have enough of all of this stuff. And, and I think it, well, I think so LP, but I, I just mean, think it's interesting. I just appreciate you silencing me. <laughs> <laughs> But I just think it's interesting how people will show up and be like, hey, so Marshall, you wrote this thing. And so I just think that I need to talk to you so that you can see that I think that I've never thought of you as a black man. I just thought of you as my friend. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not going to I'm not going to have that conversation. That's 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 not my conversation with you right now. But but I don't know. I I like I, I like what you're putting out there. And I think that's a I think that's I think that's what we need. So Thank you just so appreciate much. that. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I do think like, I appreciate, um, I do appreciate the angry people too. And the mm -hmm. people who get shit done and who make a stand and who create changes in their own way too. And I think that there's space for that. But I also think that, um, I think that sometimes people don't have the best, um, intentions or motivations, especially on social media. Sometimes it's just an attention grab or a power grab or, you know, they will take something in order to make themselves look like, you know, they're on a crusade for righteous cause. But really, at heart, what is it? What does they really want? What is they really doing? Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of angry people who've gotten a lot of great things done and that, you know, it's not my way. But I've seen them affect some positive changes. But I also don't think anger is, you know always the right response for every situation and it's not the only response i um I, I talked to some of my friends who are newer writers or kind of in the dumps about their their uh their duotrope um statistics uh in that like you know you can get bumped a lot of times for stories that like i think are you know subjectively really good um yeah. one of the things that i have to remind my friends a lot of is that um Slush readers aren't necessarily taught to look for genius or innovation. They're try taught to look for reasons to disqualify. Yeah. Um, and I bring that up and that's relevant because I don't know if everyone knows this, but at Fantasy Magazine, the editors-in-chief are the only readers at the magazine. So I wanted to talk yeah. to you a little about what the decision is to be slush reader and then uh, story picker, co-story picker, and then like polish this thing up to put it on the magazine person yeah um it comes down to seeing what other magazines are doing seeing what the field looks like a lot of people talking about oh black lives matter we support black lives but then you see the latest black spec fic report come out and it it has all the facts you know like you can say black lives matter all you want you can say we support diversity all you want, but those are the facts. And a lot of people, you know, 
will talk a lot, um, but what actually happens? What are the results in in what they're doing? Um, and you know, as a whole, genre is not that it's not doing that well with the diversity, especially for Black folks. And um, so it comes down to wanting to do a very specific thing at fantasy and wanting to do something very different. Um, One of those things is about feeling like a lot of people get published because of who they are or because of their relationships. Um, And for us, that makes the fields feel stale. Like we read a lot of stories by, by such and such a name that it's like, okay, I don't know how this got published, you know? And there's an argument for maybe, maybe the editor thought it was really great. But I think that there are a lot of cases where, you know, the editor wanted a name and the name sent in a story. And maybe it was a trunk story or maybe it was something they banged out and the editor was like, cool done. Here's your check, you know? Um, and so we don't like that. We wanted, we wanted a place that really is, uh, you know, publishes new, fresh and, uh, a range of voices. And I can't tell you how many, like we talked about going to cons, right. And I can't tell you how many times I went to cons my first year of going to cons. I met at, you know, all the editors, basically, uh, of all the magazines, you know, all the big ones and some of the small ones. And they almost always will tell you, oh, I just love finding a new voice. And then you look in the pages. And again, I'm not just talking about theory. I've actually looked at these statistics. You look at the pages and you say, where are these new voices that you talked about? You say you love publishing new voices, but the percentage is very low. Oh, I love diversity. You say you love diversity, and yet the percentage is very low. Or it's always that, you know, those one, two, or three names that always, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> we know who they are. And, and we love them. They're great people. The ones that get trotted out on a regular basis. We 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 do a great job. We publish the same six people. Yes. And I should also note that, like, I, yeah. my, my, my pro sales are all in reprints. So I'm just like, <laughs> great. Yeah, and so, um, you know, Christy and I, when we first launched this magazine, we talked about a lot of things that we didn't like about the industry as it is. And then we were vibing so hard, and we are like, we should just start our own magazine. And we were like, yeah. And then that's how the magazine started. And so the decision to not use slush readers comes down to, we want to do a very specific thing which is provide that space to new writers to, you know, in our pages, we don't care if you're famous. We don't care if you have a name. We don't care if you're friends of ours. We publish the work that we think needs to be seen, period. And as a result, you will see a lot of new writers in our magazine. You just will. I haven't haven't run the statistics, but I guarantee you if you run the statistics – um, you know, we probably publish a lot more new or entry career authors than most magazines, most pro magazines for sure. Uh, um, and, you know, we don't, I mean, we don't, I hesitate to say this because we don't come out and say, you know, oh, we're about diversity and inclu- inclusivity, 
but we actually are, <laughs> you know, and the black spec fic report shows it. And we were pretty, <laughs> we were pretty uh, happy <laughs> about that because we just want to, we just want to be inclusive. We don't want to be another space that's saying, Oh, we're so inclusive. And then it's like, well, where are the results? We would rather just give you the results and you decide what we're doing for yourself. Yeah. You know, that's our mission. And we can't, I just don't trust anyone to read the way that I read. We don't trust anyone to read the way that we read. I'm afraid, you know, like Shingai's story that we published in our first issue, I feel like, you know, what if a slush reader passed on that, you know? And that story had me bawling because the slush reader didn't read it right, didn't see what it's trying to say and what it's trying to do. You know, and it's not that there aren't great people out there. It's not that, um, you know, people aren't brilliant or that people can't read or whatever. It's just that I only trust myself and I don't know how to teach people to read the way that I read. I read across a bunch of spectrums and the things that are my biases, you know, like everybody has reader bias, but my reader biases are very different from like, you know, 99% 99% of all the other editors in genre, you know, so I'm okay with my reader biases because <laughs> it's going to counterbalance what a lot of other people are doing. And I, I also don't feel like, you know, when I first was hitting genre, I was like, you know, Oh, I was thinking like, so-and-so should do this. Such and such should do that. This market should be more diverse. This market needs more black voices. They've published, you know, there was one market I looked at had 78 stories. They published three black authors in, in the year that I looked at 78 stories, three black authors. Okay. So of course I was like, they should be publishing more black voices, but at the same time, that's their magazine. It's a passion project. So part of me feels like they have the right to do whatever they're going to do. I can't force them to read differently. I can't force them to see things differently. I can't force them to be a different person. You know, and if they ask me my thoughts, I'll give it to them. But what I can do is I can run a magazine differently. That's what I can do. So that's that's why we do it, because we know what we can do. We know exactly what we want to do. And it's a lot more work. And it means that, you know, our submission process is a lot slower. But we feel like it's worth it because what we're doing is very different from what a lot of other places are doing. I love that. I love that because um, there's not, there are plenty of writing courses. I feel like there aren't enough editing courses um, or how to run a magazine courses or bitches a list of books you can read so that you're not like looking at this with the same white gaze as everyone else. Yeah. Um, the same white straights. <laughs> the same white straights. And it's like, oh God. I, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing because I know I think about that when I submit. I'm like, all right, like on the one side, I'm like the pray and spray guy. So let's send it to all the simultaneous submissions at first. And then the other side, I'm also like, is anyone going to like this quiet story? There's like, (laughs) there's not an antagonist, but it has a lot of heart. And like, how do you feel about that? Um, (laughs) I have a, I got a quick thing real quick. In in my program, literally today, we were talking to a couple of, um, edit you know people that slush read and stuff like that and we were just and so if because obviously people are going to be interested in in your magazine after after 
after this. Uh, what, what, what specifically, what do you, what, what keeps you, what are you looking for? What do you, what do you, should I not ask this question? Ask whatever you want to ask. Well, no, ask he's shaking ask. his head. So I don't, you know. I do what I do what I want. I'm grown. No, no. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm just saying, so somebody you. that wants to submit to your magazine, what yeah. what is it that specifically that you're looking for? What turns you off? What is like, and, and so, like you said, you have different, you look at things a little differently than other people. So like, what is it about your process that is different than other slush readers? I guess is what I'm saying. Since you're not really a slush reader, since you're the, you know what I mean? But you're the person reading everything that's coming in. Yeah. I'm reading the slush. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really depends. I mean, we like a lot of pro markets. Um, we get a lot of submissions. And so we make a lot of decisions based upon the first sentence, the first paragraph, the first page, the first two pages. I would say most of the rejections that I sent out are based on, you know, the first two pages at most. Um, so I think, first of all, um, what we're looking for is that something has to stand out within that space. And back to what LP was saying about this quiet story, the, there's this old school way of thinking, which is that you have to have action. You have to have a plot, blah, blah, blah. But for me, that's not true. For a lot of editors, that's not true. It's not about any one thing. It's just about something standing out in some way that compels you to keep reading. That could be the prose, that could be the setup, that could be the character, it could be the setting, it could be the idea, it could be a combination of things. And I personally think uh, some of the strongest writing is really doing multiple things in the space of the first paragraph, when you start to analyze it and break it down. Um, so you can have a quiet story, you can have a story that has no plot, you can have a story, you can have all kinds of stories, but something has to stand out Something has to grab you in some way in the span of that first sentence, that first paragraph, that first page, and onto the second page. And from there, everything has to keep the momentum of interest, you know, um, because there, and there's, there's an equation there too. You know, if the interest generated in the very beginning is super strong, that might carry uh, me through more of the story. But um, generating interest in that beginning is going to take me to the next page. But you have to keep maintaining some degree of interest. You know, there's a balance there. Um, what specifically that means can be so many things because there really are so many kinds of stories. Um, and we like to be surprised. Uh, I tend to like stories with uh, an emotional core or a meaningful core. I like meaning in stories. But I've also bought stories that weren't that meaningful, but that did something really cool. So there's always exceptions to the rule. Um, just like, you know, we're a fantasy magazine, so we're going to see hundreds of stories about witches. You know, if we see 100 story, stories about witches, you know, 95 of them are going to be more or less the same, and they're going to sound the same. But those other five are going to stand out in different ways to different degrees and different levels. And so really, I think what it comes down to is that story standing out in some way, some way that makes sense and that um, compels you to keep reading. That can be so many things. The things that are hard passes 
are racism, sexism, violence against women, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lot of times people will do shit that they, you know, oh, I'm a white guy and I want to write a story about racism, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm like, stop. I'm like, I understand why you think that, but 99.9% of the time it is not doing what you think it does. And, you know, 99.9% of the time you are just, you know, really getting on my nerves, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know? Um, so I've seen that a lot with men writing about women or, you know, writing about gender or just straight dudes writing about gayness or whatever. I've also seen some uh, unaware sexism, unaware racism, you know, um, I saw this kind of love story once come in that was about mountaineering. I won't say too much because I don't want to, um, you know, do the make somebody public kind of thing, but you know, they wrote this love story that you could tell they felt it was beautiful. And that I think, you know, it was a, it was a gay love story. And I think that most editors wouldn't realize how racist the story is, but I'm not most editors. Right. Right. I'm like, um, and I wrote a rejection that said, you know, just so you know, from my perspective, this is pretty racist. Here's why. And you, you can do what you want with that. You know, you could call me an asshole or whatever, but here's the information um, that probably no other editor is going to give you because, you know, at the pro mags, you got me, you got Cherie. (laughs) That's it. You know, there's Faya. um, And he's not sending that story to Faya (laughs) because he's a white guy, but um, he might send it. (laughs) <laughs> you might send it but fair, the fact that fair. you said you told them that is yeah, important I, I think I, you know so he emailed me back and thanked me I've, I've done that a few times where I told someone this is pretty misogynist mm-hmm. I told a guy once his story was misogynist he emailed me back saying oh thank you um, actually um, my daughter told me it was misogynist and I rewrote it but then I wrote it back and I wrote back and said, you should listen to your daughter. <laughs> this whole thing would have been fixed if you just don't think that wow. you're smarter than your daughter, you know? Right. And now you can't resubmit it to me. Yep. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, people do things that they're not really aware of. And yeah. I don't always have time to explain to people or the energy because it does require a lot of energy. But mm-hmm. those things are, those things are hard passes and, um, you know, I, I noped out really fast on a recent story that was like somebody, it was a, it was a straight guy trying to write about feminist issues. And it was pretty obvious that he didn't understand the ways in which he was being misogynist, even though he's trying to write about feminist issues. And so it's kind of like, you know, you're not, yeah. you're not quite there yet. Yeah, for sure. Uh. Yeah. Those are hard passes, but otherwise, you know, we love to see things that we don't expect or just, you know, something new, something personal. I love things that are really, that feel really personal and true and lived in, but it doesn't have to be that way either. Sure. Um, 
Before we get to our last couple of questions, I'm going to ask LP if he has another, uh, another one or two, but um, I'm curious too, because this is just keep writing well black. We do this episode, these episodes um, periodically throughout the year, but we do four in a row during black history month. And one of the things that we talk to uh, folks about is just some of the, I, I guess what I would like to ask you though, is like, there are barriers, there are issues that folks have when they go to publish, uh, when black folks go to publish. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is kind yep. of two questions. What are some of the barriers you might've encountered, but also, um, some advice, uh, considering your position now for, um, you know, emerging black authors to navigate this. Yeah. My, I'll start with the advice. Cause in a way that's easier for me to talk about. Um, the advice is be true to yourself, write the stories that you really want to write. Um, and the barriers are real. There are people who are not going to read your story right. There are people who are racist. There are people who don't care. They know they're racist and they don't care. There are people who think they're not racist and they are. Um, there are people who are going to bounce off, you know, oh, this isn't in, quote, proper English, unquote, or this is a term I don't recognize, unquote, or they just won't get the subtext of the story because you're talking about something that they don't understand. So you could have a line in there that, you know, that somebody who has the context, I think a lot about, for example, the experience of Black people going into a store and what happens, you know, with a white clerk. And the way that I think about specifically in the thought of if a, if a white author writes the line, you know, the clerk checked me out as soon as I walked in the door, depending on who the author is and who the reader is, they might read that as, oh, is it gay flirtation? But if you're black, you read that as, oh, shit, here we go. Yep. You know, here we go. <laughs> like, and so you can write that line and most of the editors at pro mags and a lot of the semi pro mags are white. And so there's just so many things that you do not have to explain. And I want to encourage you to not explain it. If you don't feel like explaining it, because you know that there are people out there who get exactly what you're saying. Yeah. You can explain it if you want to, it's your decision. You know, if you want to translate your experience for white people, that is up to you 100%. But I believe that you should do what you want to do and talk about what you want to talk about. I also believe that you should still send your stories out to all these markets because what if it lands? Yeah. What if it sells? You know, the barriers are there. You, nine times out of 10, you're going to feel like you got rejected because of racism. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. You won't know. And it's not important to know. What's important is that you keep sending your shit out and that you keep going and that nothing stops you. Because the only, you know, if if this white editor at this magazine rejects you, that is not what stops you from writing. You stop you from writing. Yeah. You got to keep going. You got to find your audience. You got to find your people and you have to build a name for yourself until people cannot say no. Until you become one of those names that, 
just gets those invites and it's like, hey, um, do you want to? And you're like, that's weird because you rejected everything I sent you, but now you're kissing my ass. Sure, I'll do the thing. Let's just move on. I'll take the money. Thank you. Yes. The answer is yes. Give me the you money. Know, because that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'll tell you what, a lot of my favorite black authors never even submitted to a lot of the Pro Max. That's something I realized when I got into the game a little bit deeper. I was like, damn, you know, like the world is missing out because this person's work is fantastic. And so few people are seeing it because it's only being published by people who know how to read this person. But that's that's the way it is. You self-reject because you think that it's not going to happen or you don't want to deal with it. And, you know, it makes you angry. Fine, be angry. Take the rejection. Send it to the next market. Be angry, fine, but keep going. Don't let them stop you. That is my advice. Do uh, you write what you want to write? What you want to write? Write how you want to write. Whatever that looks like, but do not stop. But also challenge yourself. Be real, because I've also seen people be like, "Well, they rejected it because it's racist, because of racism." And I'm like, "Yes, racism is a thing, but honey." The story ain't there yet. It's not there yet. You need to yeah. put in the work now. Come on. Yeah. You're, you know, <laughs> you're not as good as you think you are. Like, come on now. Put in the work. So that's the other side of it is you got to work on your craft. So in terms of barriers for me, it's a little bit different. I hate the word passing because the word passing does not describe my experience. Um, obviously, I don't present as Black to a lot of people. It's very rare that somebody says, like, once in a while, I'll be somewhere, and usually it's an older Black woman. She'll look at me for a minute. <laughs> I'll look at her. I'll be like, stop. She'll look at me. She'll be like, you Black, ain't you? I'll be like, no, I'm Black? Yeah. <laughs> but nine times out of ten, like, I've even done interviews with people, and I, and I know they don't know I'm Black, so I'll say up front, by the way, I'm also Black, so, you know, we're going to take this wherever we take it. You know, because I can tell they don't know. Um, For most white people, I read as, um, you know, ambiguously ethnic. So the term passing isn't accurate for me because in my experience, I don't pass because I'm not treated as white, but I'm also not treated as black. So my experience is somewhere in the middle where there is something else going on. At the same time, in black communities, I'm also often othered and, you know, treated a certain kind of way. So in my experience growing up, I've had a very complex identity thing going on where I don't know where I belong. I don't always feel like I fit and I feel othered by everybody. You know what? I'm queer too. Come on now. You know, I can't even be queer right either you know i'm like a weird queer like i'm queer 90 percent of the time and then 10 percent of the time and they're like come on are you gay or not uh, i don't know just shut up let me be me so you know but at the same time you know i'll go to a convention and it's all white people and i don't feel like i belong and then you know always 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 they're gonna do those microaggressions they're gonna do those little racisms they're gonna be like where are you from no, but where are you really from? You're so exotic, blah, 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 blah. So I immediately get othered. So I'm not passing, but a lot of black people will look at me and say, and they'll think, well, you're passing. And I'm like, that's not, you know, I'm not 
living that same black experience, but I'm not white either. And when I was young, I used to get pulled over by the police all the time. And I mean, all the time. We were pulled up over once. I was in a car. There was five people. I was in the middle, in the back. And the white cop singled me out and questioned me. I'm in the middle, in the back, but everyone else is white. So this kind of shit happened to me all my life. I got pulled over on my bike. I got stopped by police all the time. At the same time, I was never afraid of getting shot. You you feel me? I was never like, oh, I'm going to get pulled over and get shot or killed. That was not my experience. But my mom, I was afraid for her getting shot. So for me, in genre, the barriers are different. I have a white name. Um, If people don't know me, you know, they see my name. So I'm writing, um, you know, I don't always write black characters. When I meet people, they don't assume that I'm black. Uh, I am probably, for a lot of white people, a very safe version of black for them. You know, I'm a very safe, approachable version. I speak a certain way. I behave a certain way. I code switch, you know, and for me, because I'm queer and black, I have like four or five different levels of code switching, you know, depending on the space. And so, you know, the barriers aren't the same for me. And I think that's really important to know because when we talk about, um, how many people of color are editors at pro magazines, for example. And some people are like, oh, but it's getting better. And I'm like, it took Cherie like decades to get that spot and to get the recognition she's getting. And I am, you know, aside from Faya, I'm like the only other person of color. And, you know, for me, I'm like, if I'm what counts for black on your scale, then you don't have any black people, basically. I can't be the only black person. I can't be the only person of color to represent people of color. That doesn't count. You know, if you got like 10 black people, sure, I can count as a black person. I'm down. But if I'm the only person, you have no black people. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you know, I don't count enough to like, to check the box, to be like, oh, we got a black person. No, you do not. You know, you need to do better than that. But I do think that people are like, oh, it's getting better. There's Arlie, there's Cherie. And then they change the subject. And I'm like, um, no. Devon, what about Devon? Devon, there's Devon. Now now we're done. (laughs) But see, I don't count them because they had to do their own thing. Like they had to, like nobody helped them. You know, they had to build themselves from scratch. And so to me, they are an amazing institution of their own. Like they are defying the industry, if that makes sense. And the rest of the industry needs to get their shit together. Indeed. Well, we're running out of time. I think we need to talk to you again for sure. That's not going to be the last question. Um, Okay. No, no. We have two questions left. The first one is before you ask the last question, Opie. Um, So, People are going to want to find you. People are going to want to see your magazine and, and follow you on social media since it sounds um, very much positive and, and amazing. So can you just tell people where they can find you, where they can follow you, stuff like that, that we can put in the show notes? Yeah. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Arley Sorg, A-R-L-E-Y-S-O-R-G. Uh, my website is arleysorg.com. 
uh, Fantasy Magazine is fantasy-magazine.com. Um, and those are the best places to go to find me. And, um, you know, uh, wherever you go, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be fantasy. Um, find the work that you love. Find the uh, authors that you love, the magazines that you love. Support them. Tell your friends about them. You know, even if it's not me, wherever you find your favorite works, um, you know, let people know about them. Awesome. And then LP, I'll let you ask the last question now. Okay. <laughs> We're just chipping over each other. It's good. Um, so, uh, so the last question that we ask uh, writers when they're on is what just keeps you writing, but what just keeps you writing and or editing? Yeah. Um, it's just the feeling of making a difference in the world, to be honest with you, even if it's small, like when somebody says, um, that tweet made my day, you know, that helped me out. Like, that's what keeps me going, man. You know, honestly, it's important to me. And uh, as long as I feel like I'm making a positive difference, I'm going to keep doing it. Awesome. Thank well, you for coming in, Arlie. Yeah, we can't thank, thank you enough for, for being me. here. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's been really special. I really appreciate your time and your attention and your questions. Awesome. And we got to do this again. Cause you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and maybe I'll see you at a con, right? <laughs> yes. We need to hang out. We need yes. to hang out. I'll introduce you to everybody. Yes. That'd be awesome. <laughs> and this has been just keep writing a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias and please jump in our just keep writing discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.